Hello and a very warm welcome to you. It's Friday here, at least at the time of our live broadcast, and we're glad you're joining us for A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an hour-long live broadcast, as I mentioned, dedicated and guided by your questions on the Bible. That's right, your questions guide the show along. We never know quite where it's going to go. That's what makes it so very exciting. Um, so do please send us in your questions, and we'll be glad to delve into the Word to find those answers. Any honest question on maybe a verse or passage of Scripture that has confused you, or Christian living, or world events from a biblical perspective, anything along those lines, as long as it's uh, an honest question, and as long as you know we're going to delve into the Bible to find those answers. That's what we're all about here at A Reason for Hope. My name's Dave Robson. I'm back with you today. Thank you to Adrian for hosting uh, from, with me uh, for me yesterday. I was officiating a wedding, which was very fun, but I am back today and very excited to be so. And with us, as usual, Pastor Sean Richards. How are you doing today, sir? Good. I uh, met a guy who knew sign language. Oh, yeah? What yeah, happened? He, well, uh, the first time in my life, I've never heard someone capable of this. He showed me how to say, I can't move my arms. Well, if you tuned in just for the dad joke of the day, <laughs> then we'll see you next time. If not, stick around because we'll have more content. <laughs> Thank you, Sean. Also with us, senior pastor here at Calvary Christian Fellowship, Scott Richards. How are you doing? Fantastic. Uh, anxious to get at the questions that the Lord brings our way today. Yeah. yeah. You just never know when it's going to come up, come up and you, where we're you going to go. Don't. So. You don't. So there are several ways that you can, you can join us. Uh, a Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona. So you can go to our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com to find out more about our fellowship here and also watch us live at the Watch Live tab. You can follow along there and there's a chat function right there. You can send your questions in. I'll be monitoring those as they come on in. Also on Facebook at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. We have a mobile app as well. So go to your, um, your app store, look for Calvary Christian Fellowship. You can download that and watch us on your mobile device, iPad or iPhone or even uh, Android. And... Uh, Lost my train of thought. Our <laughs> on YouTube, uh, the, the channel is called A Reason for Hope on YouTube. You can follow along there as well and also see the archive shows. Go back in time and watch the shows that you may have missed. Our email address, if you're listening to us on the radio, you want to use our email because you are listening to our previous show pre-recorded. Our email address is questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope spelled out at gmail.com. You can also... Follow Pastor Scott on Twitter at Scott R4H. That's Scott, letter R, number four, letter H, where he posts highlights from the show and also um, you know, world events from a biblical perspective and all kinds of things, snarky snippets, as you say, and all kinds of stuff. So AMA address and Twitter is a great way to keep in touch with us ongoing, but please do send us those questions in. Get them in early. We often run out of time. We try and fit all the questions in, so I will be personally monitoring all those feeds and platforms. Send your questions in, and we'd love to answer them on the broadcast today. So with all that being said, which one of you fine gentlemen would like to pray? Huh? Take first come, first serve. I'd love to pray. Let's do, <laughs> do that. Lord, what a privilege it is to enter into your gates with thanksgiving. Thankful that we have an open and wonderful entrance provided for us into your very presence because of what Jesus did for us. Lord, thank you for sending your son to die for us and rise from the dead so that we could have life simply by putting our faith and trust in what he has done. And Lord, I pray that if there are any within the sound of our voice uh, on listening to this broadcast today, for whatever reason, who have never invited 
Jesus into their heart. I pray that this would be the day they come to know him, they come to know your son, they come to know you, Father, through the power of your spirit, uh, Lord, that many people all around the world uh, would be uh, brought to that wonderful saving relationship with you. And Lord, uh, for those who know you uh, and desire and delight in your word, I pray that you would satisfy them early with your mercies. I pray, Father, that we would uh, build a foundation of faith on what you have to say to us, uh, not man's word about God, but your word to us, uh, literally God-breathed. And I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would speak uh, very special and individual points of application into any and every subject that we explore in the next few minutes. Thank you for being here. Thank you for meeting us here. Lord, uh, we welcome your presence and your power and your point of view to this broadcast. In mm. Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I was talking to my my mom this morning in London, England. It's her birthday today. And oh. yeah, she was Happy saying- Happy birthday, Mrs. Yes. Robson. <laughs> Thank you. 36 again. So 36 again, which is weird because I'm 47, but she was saying how much my mom and dad enjoy your um, updates that you do and find it really fascinating, your the biblical perspective on world events. So thank you for doing those. Well, it's certainly uh, my pleasure. You know, yeah. it really is, I think, uh, just following through on what Jesus said, when you see these things begin to happen, uh, what things? Well, the things that Jesus predicted, look up for your salvation draws near. It's just fascinating uh, I think it was uh, uh, Francis Schaeffer who once made the observation that uh, faith in Christ and understanding of his word is like a key to reality that fits exactly right. And uh, the, when we look at biblical prophecy, we look at the signs of the times, and we see what's going on here, well, we see a great illustration of that and should give us great confidence uh, knowing that uh, the Lord is in full control of everything that is going on. But what a blessing uh, that uh, your family are, yeah. are encouraged and uh, edified by that, and uh, we will continue uh, to, in a sense, be the watchman on the wall, taking a look at what's going on and letting you know how it relates to the Bible. Yeah, very good. So we appreciate you doing that. We did have a question that came in um, over email, a bit of a discussion from from Nick. Uh, His question was, are there other gods? And this was interesting, actually. He says that the Bible refers to other gods, um, as in, you shall have no other gods before me. Is this referring to a false god or false idol, or is God actually acknowledging that there are other gods, but maybe he's just, you know, the best one? Yeah, in this, <laughs> we basically just have to keep a close eye on the dictionary. Uh, three terms that need to be understood, the term God and to apply it consistently, the term idol and how it's used in every context in reference to the gods of the nations, and of course, ha- making sure that our conclusions are tested with scripture, not ultimately rested on the laurels of my chosen Hebrew scholar who's known to popularize this false doctrine. Uh, First, let's go with the term God. God, in the most broad term possible, just means one with power. So if we go to 2 Corinthians, for instance, and note the God of this age has blinded their eyes. Right. It's referencing a sure? being with power. Yeah. It's not saying that Satan is a God. Or all-powerful, but noting, with yeah. power. Yeah. yeah, it's noting that he has influence. It's having power. Uh, if we're going to refer to the God of this age, if we're going to the, refer to those who are thrones, principalities, and powers, if we're referring to those who are as God to Pharaoh, Obviously, these all have different contexts and different terms in reference to the main object. When we refer to God as God, that's not his name, it is a title, a title of not just being powerful, 
but having all power. And what you're going to have to be careful with when you talk to people, Mormons most prominently, but there are groups on the internet that are gaining traction promoting what's called henotheism, that there are many gods out there, but that the god of the Bible is just the one at the top. The idea that because there is anything in this world that's been given power from God, that's therefore rightly classified as a god. And they would even go out of their way to say the spiritual entities that are identified in the Theogony, for instance, or the Pros Edis, uh, Thor, Zeus, Hermes, you, you pick, take the pick. These are actual entities, and you need to be Marvel careful. Marvel comic heroes? Yeah. Well, yeah. You'd yeah. probably get a more compelling story if you stuck to those, but unfortunately, old people knew how to write fan fiction too. Point being made is this, though. Uh, when we are talking about things like Mammon, things like Baal, and there are many Baals, by the way. The term just means master. We talk about Astareth. We talk about uh, Chemos or the uh, gods of the Canaanites and so forth that are addressed by name. This equivocation to reference our rhetoric lessons with uh, Peter and I of the term God meaning to have anything with power and to then say because this is a God and gods can exist therefore this thing exists you have to be careful with that because you have to test that with other sections of scripture before we get into testing our conclusions or the conclusions of bad teachers let's jump over to the second term God well what about idols? What about these other gods, the gods of the nations? When they're referred to as idols, does that mean that they're just not as powerful as the true and living God, or is there a deliberate significance to using that word? Yeah, well, uh, the Hebrew word used to describe idols is a fascinating one. It's the Hebrew word elil. It literally means nothings or <laughs> vanities, really, uh, emptinesses, uh, you know, wastes of time, uh, if you will. Uh, you know, the uh, uh, theological workbook of the Old Testament uh, gives this definition of not good for nothing, worthless. Um, and it is used to describe false gods. Mm. You know, the, the problem that, uh, that comes when people will try to build doctrines based on word studies alone, I mean, it's important to understand what words mean. And we can get a depth of meaning by doing word studies. But when we uh, build a doctrine based upon a word study alone uh, and uh, we don't test it according to what the plain uh, teaching of the Scripture is, uh, oftentimes it can be a, uh, a pretext for leading people astray. When it comes to idols and using the terms good for nothing or worthless, it doesn't mean that they might be out there but have worthless character. It means literally that they are figments of people's imaginations. A mm. uh, great example of this is found in uh, Psalm 115. Uh, there we read this, but our God is in heaven, verse 3, he does what he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk, nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them, so is everyone who trusts in them. Mm -hmm. uh, literally, uh, you're going to end up being like your God. And we see this literally acted out in Joshua chapter 10, where God tells Israel, let your idols save you. 
And of course, they can't, so they repent. They come back to God and ask for his mercy. Or Isaiah challenging the idols of the people to declare as he does, revealing the end from the beginning. And this is where the third term is going to be most, most important. If anyone comes to you, even an angel from heaven or a Hebrew scholar from the Midwest, comes to you and says there's another God out there than the God of Israel, that of the entities in the spiritual realms, because they can be classified as powers, they're by definition gods, they are manipulating you. They are teaching a false doctrine, or at least being so lazy with it that they can't be held to accountability for anything that they teach. And the reason why is because if I come to a conclusion about Scripture that I focus so narrowly on the reference to this term, but then apply it so broadly that I would apply the term God to demons, and that I would then make the astronomical leap that these demons are the actual entities of Zeus, Hermes, Poseidon, Apollo, and so forth. Then I have to say, does that wash with other plain statements in Scripture? And, of course, the passage where God puts his cards on the table and says, are there any other gods out there that declare as I do? A prophecy that names King Cyrus, Cyrus the Great from the Medo-Persian Empire, by name, does so in order to verify his status as God compared to the literal nothings everywhere else. That even though Cyrus was an idol worshiper, a pagan, someone who attributed gods that weren't gods by nature, which is also a quote from the Bible, by the way, remember that book? It ultimately builds this case. God says in verse 5, I am the Lord. Now, L-O-R-D, that's identifying him not just as God in a general sense, that's the covenant name of God, the becoming one, the one who is, was, and is to come. And it says, there is no other. Now, people will jump on this and say, see, there's no other Yahweh. Well, continue reading the verse. This is important. There is no God, not no other Lord. There is no God besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now, we can, again, sandwich it back. Go one verse prior. I am the Lord, there is no other, there is no God besides me. I will gird you even though you have not known me, that you may know from the rising of the sun to its setting, there is none besides me. When he makes the reference to there is no other God besides me, is he using the term Yahweh or Lord, or is he using the term Elohim, God in general terms? In the sense that we're applying it to a divine being, the sense in which we apply theos, right, in Greek, to God, God says there is nothing that exists out there. Everything other than me that would claim to be a god is a nothing, an idol, literally. What's the Hebrew word again? Elil. Elil. So if we're going to be, and we can reference other passages too, we can go to the next chapter, Isaiah 46 and verse 9. We can go to Jesus being noted as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And in referencing Isaiah as a spiritual authority in John chapter 6, John chapter 9 and 10, and on it goes. We can go to New Testament passages in Colossians where it notes that the gods of the nations are idols, literally nothings. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, where he notes that even though there are so-called gods and so-called lords, to us there is what? One Lord. Not signing off on henotheism, saying they're wrong. 
And that's what needs to be understood because there are teachers out there, and again, I don't want to name them because it's not relevant to the conversation, but arguing for this case, literally turning scripture on its head in order to make his books and findings relevant is not good Bible study, is not effective ministry. And if there are those of you who have further questions on this, again, feel free to send them. But make sure that they're sincere because we run into too many people too many times, not of the faith, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses that cite the work of scholars like this that are ultimately and only ever a discredit to the Christian faith, that I have to dismiss and discount the works of these scholars in order to get us back in Scripture because of his purposeful mishandling of it. No, these are your scholars, they say. No, this Christian even affirms our point that there are a plurality of gods out there. And the point being made is this. The Bible is plain in the information that it puts forward. And if you need a scholar, quote-unquote, to literally walk you through how this doesn't mean what it says, he's either sloppy or he's lying to you. But the point being made is that should not be your source of spiritual truth. If someone comes to you and says there is more than one God out there, that there are gods of the nations, the first thing to do is say, where'd you hear that from? because no one would get that from just a plain reading of the Bible. Oh, this guy walked me through it. It's in the original Hebrew. Okay, let's go to the Hebrew Bible. Let's stick to the Old Testament here. When Israel (laughs) is given the Shema, what is it? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is the top? No, no. Um, You know, and and the the Bible really can be much more plain on this subject. I mean, Isaiah 44 and verse 6 says this, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me, since I have appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come. Let them show these to them. Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. And then it goes on to how foolish idolatry is. Those who make an image, all of them are useless, uh, and their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. So, you know, I guess what I'd say is I can see how people might uh, get seduced, if you want to use that term, into uh, these kind of um, non-productive studies in that they feel like there's a, a element of the Bible that they just haven't ever heard taught before, and this is something really new, and and a take on uh, the scripture that that only a select handful of those who are really studying it in the original language are going to grasp and understand. But understand this, and I say this as someone that has a three-year master's degree in biblical languages and theology. Uh, I don't consider myself to be a scholar just because I've completed that level, but I can read. And when the, well the God of the Bible says, uh, you know, is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. And he knows the, everything. The, the source of this is the one who's omniscient. It's not that there's some that have scuttled over in a corner and have, uh, you know, escaped his notice or, yep. or holding court in Asgard or someplace like that. No, there's one God and only one God. Does that mean there aren't principalities and powers out there, demonic forces and entities that uh, are organized against the knowledge of God? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, their power is in deception. Their power is in false doctrine. And that's what we really have to be on our toes about. And if, uh, you know, there are two equal and opposite errors, I think, people make in spiritual warfare. And one is to ignore the idea that there really is 
a fallen, wicked one, Satan. Uh, Jesus wasn't tempted in the wilderness by a metaphor or an idea or a, an emblem of evil. It was a very personal, fallen, angelic being, but not a god, uh, not someone who is equal and opposite of him. He's called little g-god for the reason you, you expressed it. He has a limited amount of power. And in Job, we see just how limited his power is. He can uh, do works of great destruction in this world and great deception in this world, but only to the point that God will allow him to do so. He is not a free agent. He is not uh, the dark side of the force and God's the light side of the force. We need to really be careful about that. The other equal and opposite error that I see people making is uh, not uh, so much being concerned about demon possession, but demon obsession. Uh, you know, they play demon, demon, who's got the demon? And, oh, we've got to figure out what these demons are all about. We've got to figure out what these principalities and powers are all about. I've never seen any injunction in the Scripture that tells us to do that. Uh, I see plenty of injunction in the Scripture to put on the full armor of God daily uh, and take our stand in the evil day because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places and so on. The battle is doctrinal. The battle is for truth, and the battle is for the hearts and souls and minds of men. And it just seems to me that if the wicked one can get God's people going to meetings where they sit around and throw up into buckets so that they can get exercised and achieve spiritual deliverance, well, that's three hours of their time. They're not out sharing God's truth with the lost and dying world. Uh, if uh, he can uh, deceive us into thinking that the reason that we have habitual sin in our life is uh, not because of lack of self-control on our part, but because we've been lightly possessed or demonized, and boy, you better pray these 12 steps to spiritual deliverance in the right order, mind you, or you're not going to be delivered. Um, you know, we're focusing in on all the, the wrong things. You know, I, I guess our point of view on this program, and it, it bears repeating, is uh, that this world is like the Titanic. We've hit the iceberg. The ship is going down. Uh, to sit around and have these, uh, these pointless, endless discussions, uh, rather than trying to reach as many people as we can and get them in the lifeboats, I think is a colossal waste of time. Mm-hmm. So we got to be on our toes, focus in on the things that matter, uh, get the gospel out to as many people as we can, and affirm God's truth. Yeah. So... Yeah, another angle I've I've heard not that there's multiple gods, but that there's one God, but that people just call him different names, and all the roads lead to the same God. So whether you call him Buddha or whether you call him Allah or whatever, there's one God, but it all goes back to the same, which is a very very nice thought. Well, unless you take the religions that make those claims seriously and grant them a motive of respect to define what they mean by God, right. the God well, George of Harrison tried to sell us that with his song "My Sweet Lord." Yeah. yeah, of course, he ended up getting sued in court for ripping off, uh, I guess it was uh, uh, the uh, the song, uh, He's So Fine, uh, and Lost in Court, and so on. But, Oops. but Not the, the, first the, time the whole mentality behind it was, uh, you know, it started out by saying, my sweet Lord, I really want to see you, I want to be with you, and so on. Uh, you know, and then the chorus in the background singing, hallelujah. Yeah. And then he goes on, and then it starts singing the names of all of these other deities, all these different gods, especially Hindu gods, because George Harrison was a devotee of, of Krishna. So, uh, you know, this idea that, uh, oh, we call him by different names, but he's the same God. It's the old analogy that Kipling talked about about the blind men and the elephant. 
you know, that uh, God is like the elephant and the blind men, you know, one of them grabbed the trunk of the elephant mm. and uh, said an elephant's like a snake. Another grabbed the foot of the elephant and said, no, it's like a tree. Another mm. one uh, felt the side of the elephant's like a wall. The other uh, grabbed the tail and said, no, an elephant's like a rope. They're all partially in the right, but they're all in the wrong. Mm. Unless you take into consideration the one telling the parable knows it's an elephant. Right. Mm. And you're assuming that we're all blind and that there is no perspective beyond our own Mm. that can give us that answer. Well, we are told that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was manifest, and we beheld his glory. Glory is the begotten begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has seen God at any time, John 1.18 says. But the only begotten God, who's in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. That word declared is really loaded in the original language, right? Yeah, exegete, literally explained down to the bone. Yeah, so we don't have to say, well, you know, you got to take, I got to take, everybody's got to take, all God's children got to take, and I'm sure it'll all work out well in the end. Here's the bottom line. The truth claims of one religious system by their very nature exclude the truth claims of another. Yeah, simple experiment you can do. Go to Israel, go up to Jerusalem, go on the Temple Mount, and you will see on the Temple Mount a building called the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Hmm. Uh, you know, it's uh, next to the Dome of the Rock. The Dome of the Rock is the one, the famous golden dome you see in the pictures. But there's also the Al-Aqsa Mosque up there. On the outside of the Al-Aqsa Mosque are these words written in Hebrew. God is not begotten, neither does he beget. Okay, here's your, your um, uh, I guess, challenge. How do you reconcile that with John 3.16? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Those two things can't be true at once. They can both be wrong, but they both can't be true mm-hmm. at the same time. So... You know, when we talk about, uh, you know, the claims of Eastern thought that uh, really uh, all that we see in the material is an illusion, that uh, that uh, the, the secret of enlightenment is detaching yourself from materialism and, and the, the cares of this world, learning to care less, if you will, is the path to true enlightenment versus Jesus saying the greatest commandment is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Mm. Do we not care about people and things, or do we intensely care about people and things? Mm. The two cancel each other out. Or just pick one attribute of what each religion claims about God and see if they're either all in conflict with each other fundamentally or not. And this, this is just being respectful. If you say everyone's saying the same thing when they're all saying different things, it shows you're either not listening to them or you're misrepresenting all of them in favor of yourself being the virtuous peacemaker. So let's start with the Christian God. One aspect of him, pick one, maybe that he made everything. Let's start with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All right, let's go to Norse paganism. This is something I study in uh, homage to my ancestors. Did God, or the Azir, create the heavens and the earth? No, uh, it just kind of showed up one day in the form of the frost giant Ymir, and uh, he started sweating out babies that eventually killed him and made the world as we know it from his bones, brains, and blood. So not what they created. It's kind of something they molded from something that just showed up by accident. Let's go to the Theogony. When the 
Heavens and the earth emerged from chaos. Was that the work of Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades? No, those were the three descendants of Kronos and Gaia who just kind of showed up along the way. Egyptian paganism, same deal in noting the origins of the universe in the Egyptian Book of the Dead. These are all things that just show up along the way as opposed to him being there eternally and introducing everything else from that source. Let's go to Islam. When Allah created the heavens and the earth, did he do so the way that the God of the Bible did? No, according to the Quran, he made it in five days or eight days or depending on what book you or Surah Ayah you read, it conflicts with each other because it doesn't get its story straight and the Hadith makes it worse. When we go to Wicca, do we note the existence of the universe or anything for that matter being clearly defined? No, they can all make up their own version and it's equally valid. We go to Hinduism and Buddhism is the ultimate essence, is the universe as a whole any different from the creator? No, the universe is the creation. The universe is eternal according to Hinduism and some sects of Buddhism. Other sects would deny the concept of God entirely, but you get the point. If we go to Hare Krishna and him noting that he's the manifestation and reincarnation of every single religious figure and deity, apparently he forgot every time that he incarnated because he said things that conflicted with each other fundamentally. It's a nonsensical perspective. We go to Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and the misrepresentation of the heavens being eternal or that Jehovah just made them through Jesus as the result of his master worker. All of these things are in conflict with each other. They can, as you said, Dad, all be wrong. One can be right, but they all can't be right because they're all saying different things. Zeus is not the same as Odin. Jesus is not the same as Krishna. Muhammad is not the uh, same thing as Brahman or the ultimate essence and so on and so forth. Mm. So when we're asking the question, don't these religions all basically teach the same thing? I'll default to a wiser man than I, where he said, oh, absolutely. They just differ on real secondary matters like God, the devil, heaven, hell, right, wrong, our origin, our purpose, (laughs) our meaning, our morality, our (laughs) destiny. Other than that, they're all basically the same. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously it's tongue in cheek. The point being made is that we respect other religions enough to actually listen to what they have to say. We also respect reality enough to say, if one of these is wrong, we want you to know about it. I take the time to study these things, and you have the opportunity too with the advent of the internet. But noting for sake of time, we are happy to address them on an individual basis, but this has to be taken seriously because we love these people and we don't want to lie about them or lie to them for the sake of their feelings or social dynamics. If these are wrong, this is eternity we're talking about, we want them to know. If these gods don't exist, then they can't save them, and we don't want them putting their hope of salvation in something that doesn't exist. And, of course, just because something sounds good doesn't mean it's right. true, even if it is copyrighted. Yeah, yeah. very good. Great discussion. Yeah. Thank you. Um, we had a question from Reynold. He, he's heard many pastors teach that there's going to be some kind of outpouring in hospitals, um, meaning a healing revival coming and a wealth transfer. Have you heard anything about that? Is there some kind of big teaching about that? Or? Well, I don't know. Uh, if uh, Depends what neck of the church woods you tend to hang out in. Yeah, you need um, to find another one. I, I uh, you know, when people make claims along these lines, 
Uh, one of the things that is always troubling to me is that people will make these claims and get their audiences fired up because it's something kind of new and different. Mm. And, oh, the new revival, it's going to be reaching out. God's going to be doing miracles in hospitals. Well, I don't know. God has been answering the prayers of lots of people that have visited people in hospitals for a long, long time. In fact, the hospital, as we understand it today, is in a sense a miracle because it was a Christian worldview that gave rise to uh, the, the concept of hospitals that we have. You know, fascinating insight into that was a PBS documentary called Faith, Hope, and Science about uh, what motivated uh, the rising of the Mayo Clinic. And uh, the Mayo Clinic, I'm one of their biggest fans because uh, <laughs> literally kind of over their, my life to a yep. life-saving procedure I had at one, was founded not just by uh, uh, the Mayo brothers, but also uh, in conjunction with an order of Roman Catholic nuns that were reaching out and trying to alleviate suffering in that area. Which you know. was the whole reason why the concept of hospitals exist. It was a Judeo-Christian invention, along with orphanages for the same reason. Yep. The Roman Empire functioned pretty much on the basis of doctors were slaves, all across the board, and you would attach yourself to a family to care for their medical needs, which at the time were pretty archaic. But nonetheless, when slaves, which made up the majority of the early Christians, were coming to salvation in their relationship with God, they would open up the homes or the gathering places where these churches right. would be, where you would find a lot of doctors, and it became assumed that the Christians would be hospitable to you, that they would treat you as one of their own, taking from Judaism and the Middle Eastern customs that wouldn't turn away strangers and provide for their needs. Right. Since they could be provided for medical, this was something assumed, and the order of the hospitalars was also something later introduced as a order within the Roman Catholic Church when that was more structured. But here's the whole point. Uh, the idea of modern government iterations and those being taken over not obviously what the church intended nor what the gospel was influenced, but the idea of taking in those that don't have anything to offer you to provide life-saving care to those is not an inalienable right. It is something that was God-motivated and God-given and, of course, God-directed. And the Christian God in particular, Muslims wouldn't have anything to do with you if you weren't one of the, uh, one of the people who are rightly guided. But the point being made is just that the concept of hospitals was invented by the Christian ethics, the teachings of Jesus Christ. But when people say things in God's name, saying God's going to work through the hospitals, well, the concept of hospitals work God. Yeah, and, and I guess where, where I see this going is, you know, if you get into the signs, wonders, and miracles business, and uh, on Sunday uh, we're going to be doing a study in Acts chapter 3 called The Meaning of a Miracle, you know, tremendous miracle. Mm. Uh, Peter and John seen this fellow at the gate beautiful who had been lame from birth. Uh, Silver and gold have I none, Peter said, but such as I have I give to you in the name of Jesus. Rise up and walk. And it's fascinating how Dr. Luke, uh, who wrote the uh, book of Acts, speaks very specifically and systematically about how this healing took place. Uh, and and the, the language that's involved there is fascinating. We'll talk a little bit about that on, on Sunday. Uh, but the, the bottom line was uh, when this fellow was healed, this huge crowd came and they were all, uh, you know, shocked and amazed. You know, Peter said, why do you look at us as if our own power and godliness 
uh, caused this miracle. It's in the name of Jesus that this man stands before you whole. And then he launches in. Uh, you know, when uh, I love the way that Peter says, it was not our own power or godliness that caused this miracle to happen. And, and this is where I get a little nervous with some of the uh, healing ministries, uh, faith movement ministries. They all seem to have, in ways sometimes subtle and sometimes gross, a way of pointing to their leader as the anointed guy, you know, the one who does the healing. And, oh, you know, he's, a, you know, Peter and John didn't have that attitude at all. So we're not the healing guys. It's in the name of Jesus that this man stands before you whole. And, uh, you know, they, you know, I, a little later on in the book of Acts, we see Paul and Barnabas in uh, in this area, and uh, they heal another lame man. And lo and behold, uh, the people there decide that, uh, wow, Barnabas must, uh, or Paul must be Zeus, and Barnabas must be Mercury because he's his chief speaker. And the guy from the temple of Zeus brought an ox to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas, and they tore their robes, and they said, why are you looking at us as if we've healed this man? We haven't healed him. Jesus has. And then they preached the gospel. And then they threw uh, a fit and tried to kill him. Yeah. Like, tough crowd. They, they, yeah, <laughs> yeah, the, the old uh, shortest distance in the universe, penthouse, the outhouse. But uh, the, the, the interesting thing about all of this is that in a lot of these ministries, although they might uh, talk a little bit about Jesus, it's all about the guy. It's all about the person. Mm -hmm. It's all about the, the leader of the ministry. And, uh, you know, we really got to be careful about that. Uh, you know, a few years back, this program, uh, when we went uh, syndicated, uh, changed the name to Scott Richards Live. And I was always really uncomfortable with that. Now, I know that there's a lot of programs out there that use the name of the, the individual so people know who the host is and it's easier for that. And I get all of that. Mm -hmm. But I, I was always very nervous about that because, as I often say, you know, people will come up to me and say, hey, I really need your opinion on something. And I go, no, you don't. And they always look at me kind of strangely. Well, you're my pastor. Of course I know. I said, look, my opinion and $3.50 will get you a cheap cup of coffee at Starbucks. But if you want to know what the Bible has to say about this issue, I'm happy to share with you. You know, I can barely manage my own life let alone tell somebody else how to manage their life. But I do know the God who puts lives back together. And and so we have to really be careful with this. And you know, one of the things that you find in a lot of these ministries that are based upon sensationalism and drawing a crowd and, oh, faith uh, is going to produce miracles and signs and wonders, is you start going down that path, you always have to keep upping the ante. You know, last week's miracle, uh, people have seen it. And so God's got to do something new, right. you know, and, and, you know, this idea of a revival in hospitals, hey, I, I pray that uh, God will uh, move with compassion upon the hearts of his people to visit people in hospitals for the better part of two years. We couldn't visit people in hospitals. I mean, these days with uh, privacy laws and so on, there was a day in my ministry career where if I went to visit somebody in a hospital and I saw somebody sitting in a bed by themselves looking lonely, I could walk on in and say, hey, mm -hmm. do you need some prayer? Can't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. that's, that's a violation of hospital rules, and they'll toss you out for that sort of thing. That's my point about government kind of messing up the whole point of what a hospital is supposed to be. <laughs> but but the, 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 the bottom line is, boy, if you want to see a revival in hospitals, um, you know somebody in your church? 
who's in the hospital, call their family, mm-hmm. find out from them if you you know you would like uh, to have someone come and visit. Uh, you know, as we all know here, being on a pastoral staff, there's only so much of us to go around. Uh, you know, our motto here is uh, disciple or die. Mm-hmm. You know, multiply or perish. You know, we want to raise up as many people as possible who can go in and pray for people. And the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, especially regarding healing, according to James. But I don't think that's going to happen because some ethereal, unworldly thing is just going to blow in uh, off the street and somehow we're going to start. It happens when we, as God's people, simply do what God has called us to do. And that is to encourage people who are sick, encourage people who are lonely, encourage people who are hurting and get involved uh, with their lives, even if it's just by a phone call. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of revival yeah. I'd love to see happen. Yeah. But I don't think when people start uh, saying, oh, there's going to be this new move of God. First of all, A, it ain't a new move, as Sean has expressed. It's been going on since the get-go. And, and B, uh, if God's going to move, he's going to move through his people. He doesn't have a plan B. Um, he uses us, for better or worse to accomplish his work and his will in this world. Filled with his spirit, no doubt. Not speaking our own words, but his word, that's powerful. But uh, but we got to go. We can't just sit back and go, oh, man, I've heard this rumor about some crazy thing happening. Yeah. You know, and, and I just think a lot of times these things are, are elements of hype, uh, something to sort of uh, juice up the ratings and uh, get people excited about something else. They're winds of doctrine, and they blow through and they blow out. I've been around a Christian long enough to have seen a lot of these things blow in and blow out. Um, you know, the uh, Toronto blessing where people were clucking like yeah. uh, chickens and and barking like dogs, and that was the new move of God. That kind of uh, evaporated after a while. Um, so to quote the famous rapper Flava Flav, don't believe the hype. Yeah, and, and, and you know, again, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, what God does lasts forever. Solomon says, what man does in and of itself is going to fade away because it's just hype. It's just the arm of man, not the arm of God. We have to be very careful with that. Yeah. It's on my mind too, to mention, um, love thy neighbor ministries. You're talking about doing the work. Oh yeah. Steve Kasperzak here at the, here at the church, um, uh, visits, uh, elderly people in homes. Those have been forgotten and have no family and in these sort of, uh, you know, state run places, um, pairs up these, Dear folk with visitors, so if that's something, if you want to be the hands and feet of, of God, something to certainly get involved in, you can reach out if you'd like some more information about that. They do a wonderful um, giving tree. We have it here at the church right now where you can take a tag and buy a gift for, for one of these elderly folk. It's usually warm clothes or something like this Christmas time, and they take them as gifts. Um, wonderful way you can be part of, of uh, that ministry. So reach out if you're interested in that too. Uh, well, thank you for uh, um, that Question, Reynold. Uh, we have a question from Nina. Why is Laodicea mentioned last and not Philadelphia? Is there significance that the tribulation begins afterwards? Yeah, be careful, Nina, when it comes to spiritualizing a text where it doesn't go out of its way to tell you to do that. There are places in Revelation where that's appropriate, and it's because of a direct reference and quotation to Revelation. Three general approaches people have as far as the 
letters to the seven churches, Revelation chapters two through three. The third is probably what you're thinking of, but I'll go to the one I prefer, to the one I least prefer. The first is because John was being nice to the mailman. If you look at a map of ancient Asia Minor and note the cities that John's writing to, Ephesus all the way to... Or directed to be written to. Yeah. Yeah. Ephesus too loud to see it. Jesus was the one writing to them, obviously. But the point being made is these cities were in that order because those cities were in that order as far as the travel route was concerned. It was sequential in that way, not because there's some significance, but, and this is the first view, just because that's the... Yeah, it's like a semicircle through uh, modern Turkey. Yeah, so check a map. That would be the first perspective. The second perspective is that these churches were significant as far as how they were addressed in any given walk with God to begin with. And there is no significance, this is the second view, uh, to their particular order. It's just addressing different kinds of places that you could spiritually be at in your walk with Jesus and how you're to address that personally in the church age. And the third view, the one that you're probably thinking of, is that Revelation chapters 2 through 3 is a prophetic overview of the church age, beginning with the church of Ephesus, which is attributed to the time of the early church and the apostles who heard Jesus' words but didn't understand him until they actually had seen him risen from the dead, and on it goes. The time of persecution then to follow, the time of the corrupt and compromised church in Roman Catholicism, the Dark Ages, the times of revival and the Reformation, but ultimately petering out. Uh, Then ultimately it's just uh, basically whoever talks first as to who's Philadelphia, the faithful church, and whoever you don't like is the church of Laodicea. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, there's a pattern there. Yeah, yeah, and the reason why I don't give this theory a lot of credence is, first of all, because there's not a lot of other biblical support to show that pattern. There are other books of prophecy in the Old Testament that address certain nations, and the significance of the order isn't much to go home about. It's just, okay, let's start with God's house. You got Judah, you got Israel. Now let's go to Babylon. Now let's go to Assyria. Now Moab, let's go. yeah. Uh, and there, there's no uh, spiritual allegory as to why they're addressed in that order. I'd take the same perspective. And the other reason why I don't give it a lot of credence, Nina, is because no one can agree or hammer down specifically which era of yeah. the church age each church is meant to represent. It's kind of a, well, you're Pergamos. It says, well, your face is Sardis. And you're just, <laughs> it just ends up being dumb. So yeah. um, careful, Nina. Again, wouldn't discount the theory. The Lord can clarify more details. But as far as a straightforward view, Jesus is talking to his people where they were at specifically. I think part of the second view, most of the first, is the reason for the order. If we were to read Second Thessalonians Chapter 2 and the great falling away is to be a reference to Laodicea. I get it, but I think if Jesus intended for that to be communicated, he wouldn't use lukewarm. He'd make more references to Second Thessalonians, which was in circulation at the time. And, of course, there are other places in Revelation right. that reference Paul's epistles that I'd expect it to be consistent with. That's why I'd say careful. Yeah, and, that, and that's the diciest part of it is that uh, where does one start and the other begin? Mm. Um, and... Uh, uh, you know, the, the idea uh, that uh, we really wouldn't fully, you know, that were, there were no lukewarm churches, say, in 300 A.D. <clears throat> I'm, I'm, certainly, I'm certain there were. Um, there's no right-on Philadelphian-style churches in 2022. Certainly hope there are. Um, are there churches that compromise with the world system or allow 
strong personalities like uh, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to set up shop and mm-hmm. start tell con- people people start, are going to have revivals in hospitals. You know, are there are there mm-hmm. people that have uh, great works but have left their first love? Sure, I mean you can look around in the year tw- two thousand twenty-two and see all of those things. Mm-hmm. Is there a prophetic significance to the pattern aside from the fact that they were on this trade route? Well, uh, you know, the Book of Revelation is a prophetic book, so like you say, Sean, I want an entirely discount that. Uh, but I think the most important point of, of perspective in all of this is we look at this and we realize that there are no new errors. There's no new challenges. There's no new opportunities and avenues for faithfulness mm-hmm. that go on uh, among God's people down through time. And if you can read through the letters to the seven churches and you know, not be able to say, wow, you know, there really are representatives of all these kinds of churches in our day and age, you're probably not paying attention. Mm. Um, We'd all like to say, hey, we're the Philadelphian church and the Lord has no word of correction for us. Uh, Don't see him lining up to be the, yeah, we're the church at Smyrna. (laughs) We're so persecuted. Jesus (laughs) just says, hold on to what you got. Most people are like, "Eh, maybe not. Um, or I have a name that I'm alive, but I'm dead. Yeah, they're not really <laughs> signing up for that sort of thing. But we need to be very careful about all of these things, and we need to realize that, uh, you know, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It speaks to all of our hearts. Mm-hmm. And, and so I don't want to so overly prophesy or lay a, a level of predictive prophecy Over that, that, that I, I fail to realize that the one who prophesies according to 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 3, speaks to men for edification, exhortation, and comfort. You're going to find those in all of those letters to the seven churches, in total and individually. Uh, and uh, I, I don't, uh, I, I, I get nervous when people just say, well, it's a prophecy, and you know, we're leaving Philadelphia, and now it's going to Laodicea, because sometimes that leads to fatalism. Mm. Well, if we're all going to be lukewarm, and Jesus is going to make, we're going to all make Jesus sick, nothing I can do about it. Oh, well. You know, no, you you know, you don't have to go down that direction, but you can say, all right, there are going to be some Laodicean churches, certainly, when uh, Jesus comes back. I don't want to be Laodicean. You know, I I don't want to be lukewarm. I want to be sold out for the Lord. I don't want to have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. Most miserable creature you'll ever run into is a person who tries to live that way because they got too much of Jesus to be happy in the world and too much of the world to be happy in Jesus. Addressed at Pergamos. Yeah, so... You know, let's let's take the totality of all of that. I don't exclude, like I say, the possibility of some prophetic overtones to it. Yeah. And uh, maybe the Lord will say, yeah, you know, that was the dominant era of the age. Uh, it certainly is, I think, in the West here. Uh, but, uh, boy, you go to sub-Saharan Africa, I don't think you're going to find a lot of Laodiceans there because you're either in with Jesus or it's off with your head, yeah. you know. So um, depends where you are. Yeah. Great. Great question, Nina. Thank you. Thank you for being part of the show and for your question. We appreciate it. A uh, question from Yari. Let's see, we're about seven minutes left here. Man, this, this, this will be quick. I, I want to make sure we can get to uh, uh, Justice's question as well. Uh, yeah. Talon. Yeah. 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 yeah the show has fl- uh, flown by. Uh, Yari asks, um, how will we remember our enemies in the new heaven and, and earth? Um, forgiven? How will that look? 
Uh, will we say, you know, what are you doing here? I thought you'd be in hell after what you did to me, that kind of thing. First well, John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. When we see him, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Right on. Yeah. When I'm in heaven, I'm not only with Jesus, I'm like Jesus. I'm going to see them in light of the redemption that we've both received. Yeah, and probably what we're going to say is something very Jesus-like if we see somebody who's done us great harm. Uh, wow, the Father forgave you because you didn't really know what you were doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, and we'll be forgiven much as well. So we'll yeah, be in that same. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> I don't know about you, but uh, when uh, when Jesus does a grudgeectomy on me, uh, when, when I see him <laughs> face to face, you heard it here first. Uh, I, I, that is going to be awesome. Mm. You know, so much of our lives are just weighted down mm. by going over things from the past and you know uh, replaying things and. And, oh, I should have said this, or why did that person say this, or why did it have to happen yeah. like this? Well, instead of just saying, okay, God, we're all fallen and sinful, please just do a work in my heart, yeah. make me gracious in the midst of this situation. Amen. So, Amen. Yeah. Great question from, is it Talon or Justice? Or, yeah, we appreciate it. And you, you mentioned um, if it's open for discussion, we're open to any honest question. Yeah, get us in trouble. We love it. <laughs> yeah. I, I loved he said he didn't want to sow discourse. In the program, I, I want to tell you, Talon, uh, we love sowing discourse. I think you meant discord, but uh, discourse, we're oh, all over discord, that. Yeah. yeah, we like conversing with each other. We like to conversate here. That's right. His question is, a, and it's a great question. I think yeah. it will probably help a lot of people out. Um, would it be good counsel for a Christian father to tell his homosexual son or, or daughter to repress their sexuality? Is that the best counsel to give if your child comes to you? Well, that's a if very, Sigmund that's Freud a very is Freudian way of uh, referring to all of this. Yeah, yeah uh, Peter Martin's talked about it before. I'll be brief. The term repression is the idea of a subconscious masking or covering of your sexual desires and urges as the driving force of all human behavior. That's an atheistic assumption and approach towards humanity, not a Christ-like one. So if we're going to say Jesus Christ is Sigmund Freud, they were both Jewish, but uh, both had very different perspectives on God. So let's start there. But the second thing is to teach someone to repress something. Obviously, that's a loaded term, and we don't have a lot of time to clarify its usage. What any sexual ethic or counsel, and I can speak from experience for you, is the same as if they were heterosexual, and it's not in undervaluing, and this is the key, value, not underuse, not to underuse or totally just put a pot on a boiling lid, your sexual desires, what a Christian counsel would be. And again, not that a Christian has done this. There have been people who've been bad counselors. Jesus is still a good counselor. In fact, that's one of his He's titles. He's a wonderful counselor. Yeah. But if we're going to note Christ-like counsel, how did he approach this sort of issue? Well, we can go to John chapter 8, perhaps, where he said to the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. But the point of emphasis, I think, as far as this practical issue and these loaded terms that are without a doubt, you acknowledge, Talon, inflammatory and meant not to have an answer because they're going to hold you to atheist terms and say, because you don't fit to an atheist paradigm, thus you're not being a real Christian. That's about as meaningful as saying John 7, 1 says, don't judge. So stop coming to objective conclusions about my ethics. Well, that's a third of the verse and I don't have to listen to you. But the point being made is just this. If we're going to say proper biblical counseling in regards to sexuality, the goal isn't to limit behavior. 
It's to realign value systems. The goal isn't to make you stop sinning. This is in any area. It's to value Jesus and honor Jesus more. I'm sure most objective, and that's a big if, but objective secular people would say, well, if you encourage your kid to have a higher view of sex than just I feel it, therefore I do it, mm. that's, re- that's commendable, whether you're Christian or not. So the father's advice to the child would be to say, whether they believe in Jesus or not, okay, you have these desires, but do you want to approach your sexuality in such a way where it only pleases you or it takes someone other than you into consideration? And this, again, is something that every relationship counselor, secular or spiritual, would also affirm. A higher view of sexuality from the Christian worldview says, well, how am I misusing my sexuality if this is what I'm attracted to? And as Peter Martin and I have said many times, the reason or the way we find out if something's being misused is its original intended purpose, not just for procreation, that's Roman Catholic dogma, not just because you feel that way, that's Epicurus, not Jesus of Nazareth. The purpose of our sexuality is to glorify God, and anything other than that is less than the best that God would have for you. Any father's going to want to set an example and say, look, I haven't gotten it always right either, but I do know that Jesus is something better for you than even you do. And that's true in everything, sex or otherwise. So that would be the godly counsel is to point someone towards God, to say, does this honor God the way you're approaching it? Since he had a standard for what sexuality is, you can take it or leave it if you're a Christian or not. But among our house, a father speaking to his son who also affirms Jesus, see 1 Corinthians 15, or 1 Corinthians 5, um, is it? 6. 6, yeah. thank you. Uh, yeah. 5, that's Close. in reference to in the, Bible. the issue of yeah. the um, those who are on the outside, God judges, we right. judge those on the inside. 6 is, of course, that point. But we're on our last minute, here comes the music. So the point being made is this, Taylor. <laughs> Understand it's not to it's undervalue like behavior, it's to make... Uh, to raise its value. I don't think anyone would disagree with that. Yeah, yeah we're not we're not uh, telling people to repress anything. We're telling people that God wants to transform you from the inside out. Yeah. That's right. the most important thing that we can offer to people. It's a great question. Maybe Monday we can pick it up again. It's yeah. a great discussion. God bless you. Thank you for being part of the show today. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.